Greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. We're now in Lesson 69. And last time we arrived at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Let's pick up the point from that, uh, from that verse. Uh, pick up the story from this verse 17, where Jesus Christ, after he came into a land that was full of darkness, as he said to Isaiah in chapter 6, that he's going to blind his own people until he's ready to come and, and deal with them. And even at that time, that was not the ultimate purpose of it, because he was talking about the end time. But he spoke also through Isaiah the prophet, telling him that there is going to be a certain time where the people who are living in darkness are going to hear the message of light. And that happened in the Galilee, and this is where he lived at the time. In the beginning of uh, his ministry, this is where he began in that region that was nearby where he lived. And so in verse 17, this is what he told them. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven, or in Hebrew, Malchut Shamaim, a very uh, common uh, usage. In other words, uh, from the beginning of time, God introduced himself in many, by many names. And when the people of Judah, when they went to Babylon, and as time went by, they began to pick up uh, uh, customs of the nations around them, where they began to use instead of the name of the deity, a euphemism, and so heaven became a euphemism for God. You know, heaven for, forbid, we use it to this very day. And uh, there is nothing wrong for, uh, in that, because this is what, uh, what it means, just like saying, you know, Washington, D.C. said that, or Rome said that, or the such and such city said that, you know, Los Angeles rejoices, uh, whatever. Uh, in other words, uh, it's a euphemism for the leadership of that city or of a certain place. And so when he said the kingdom of heaven, nobody, none of them has ever understood it to mean that the kingdom is in heaven, but that the kingdom is of heaven. Now, that came much later on by the unlearned and only children of the counterfeit church. And the other churches that came out of it, who had no knowledge, no background, no understanding of what Christ was talking about, of idioms, of the language, and uh, therefore they came up with their own doctrines, and even the Jews fell for it in terms of the false concept, the false teaching, the false doctrine that people, when they die, they go either to heaven or to hell. And therefore, now when they read with that false doctrine in mind, these words, kingdom of heaven, they said, aha, it has to be in heaven. And so everybody goes to heaven. Well, God made it very plain. And no Jew ever believed that in the days of Christ or before that. Uh, and that, that took a little while. In the Jewish community, uh, there was a very, very famous, uh, highly respected uh, theologian, Philo, in Egypt. And being influenced by the society around him, Egyptian uh, theology, he introduced, uh, at least that's my understanding, introduced, uh, the concept of the immortality of the soul into Judaism, and uh, much of Judaism in other areas at the time resisted that and resented that, but gradually, the way things are, uh, things filter uh, into the minds of more and more people, and pretty soon becomes a, a prevalent doctrine throughout the whole community. And so, when we read here, the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand, this is the very kingdom that all the prophets spoke about, that all the people of Judah at the time understood, that was the very kingdom of which the apostles at the end of their journey with Jesus Christ 
in the flesh on this earth and then after his resurrection that was the last question that was on their mind in chapter uh, 1 and verse 6 of the book of Acts they ask him Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel you see and they knew that and everybody knows and to this very day everybody knows that Israel is not in heaven Israel is right here on this earth and so the, the message was very plain they understood it very plainly but you see what happens when a foreign spirit takes over and then foreign doctrines begun to, uh, begin to creep in and then the faith that was delivered to the fathers as Jude would speak about and people did not, did not understand what he's talking about they thought well he's talking about the faith that was delivered by Jesus Christ no the faith he's talking about the faith that he grew up in the faith that the fathers grew up in the faith that the prophets grew up in the faith that Moses spoke about and Abraham and all that that's the faith he's talking about not a new faith that came about on the scene 2,000 years ago. That's, again, another false concept that came later on by the children of the counterfeit churches. And those who came out of it, unfortunately, take it with them without realizing where, where they got it from. And so they asked him about the kingdom that the prophets talked about when God said himself that he's going to come back and rule on this earth. And in Daniel, you read about that kingdom uh, that is ruling in the kingdom of man. There you, you specifically see where the location of it. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, who thought that he is a big shot and everything is uh, accomplished by his own will and did and all that, well, God was going to teach him a lesson and all of humanity at the time, and he made an animal out of him, and he was told. He heard a voice uh, from heaven that told him that this decree that is coming upon him to turn him into an animal is of the most high to let the whole earth know, all men know, you can read in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, then later on in chapter 5, where Nebuchadnezzar himself talks about it, I believe in 521, to let him know, and all men, that God, or the Most High, rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he wishes. And so the kingdom of God is when God comes to rule on this earth. And this is the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about. And that's why the prayer that later on in the so-called the Lord's Prayer, the words are very plain to those who understand the context. Thy will be done in, on earth as it is done in heaven. In other words, his will will be done on earth is when his kingdom is on this earth. When he, that is, when Jesus Christ rules on this earth. And after that, a thousand years later, the Father himself comes and he is also on this earth. Because this is what the ultimate destiny of even heaven itself. And so people at the time had no problem understanding it, and we should understand it, as I said, always understand it from the point of view of God, and the history of the Church of God should be understood from the point of view of what God said about it, not what men said about it. That's where people go wrong in many ways and take things for granted, especially things that have been taught for centuries, and 2,000 years, and sometimes even more than that. And uh, the kingdom of God is when God comes on this earth, as you read in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9, among many other places. In that day, the eternal shall be the king over all the earth, as his name, and his name shall be one. Speaking by the eternal that just descended, that's Jehovah, the Messiah, the God of Israel, the husband of Israel, of the wife, that just descended, his feet descended on the Mount of Olives. And he destroys all the enemies of Israel and he brings back all of Israel and he purges them, atones for their sins and iniquities 
which, anyway, he done already 2,000 years ago when he was on the cross, but now he's going to do it in a ceremonial uh, uh, fashion where all the nation will be cleansed and purged and purified, and he's going to take them to himself, and he's going to, to marry them, and they shall be his people, and then he shall be the king over all the earth. And that's the kingdom that he's talking about here. And therefore, he says, you repent, because you cannot enter into that kingdom without repentance. And so you see, again, the centrality of it, and the centrality of the message that is to Israel, the kingdom to Israel. That's the kingdom he's talking about, which ultimately is going to reign over the whole earth, as all the nations become the children of this marriage between God and his wife Israel. And it's not any other group or organization, as the counterfeit church believed, and many still do to this very day, and unfortunately many in our meets came up with, from that and do not realize what they brought with them. And I think it's true that the church is a separate identity and entity and uh, organization from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, that's one of the greatest false doctrines that has ever been taught in the last 2,000 years. And God commanded us, you come out of Babylon, because in believing it, you're a member of it, at least in part. And we should not be serving two masters. You can't serve two masters, God said. So let's understand it from God's point of view. And then we continue to chapter 5 in the book of Matthew, and we, we continue the discourse. Basically, what you are going to read in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is a similar experience that happened long ago before that, about 1,500 years earlier, when God brought his wife out of Egypt. They were in darkness. Just like here, he came to, to his people, and they lived in darkness, and he brought them light. And so God came down to Egypt, as he promised to Jacob that he will go down with him. And speaking about the whole nation also, not only Jacob himself. And he brought them out of Egypt, brought them into Mount Sinai. And he came down on the mount, and then he began the discourse of giving them truth, light, knowledge, and understanding to his wife. And, of course, he gave the Ten Commandments. He spoke to all of Israel. And then, when they got a little bit scared, he said, Moses, okay, you come up here. I'll speak to you, and you speak to them, because uh, uh, they're afraid of me. So, I'll talk to you. But, had they not been afraid, he would have continued to speak to them. And so, when he now comes in person, as Jesus Christ, the anointed Savior, the Messiah, still their God, and still at this point, still the husband of Israel, some people don't realize that and don't think about that. This is the husband speaking to his wife, just like he did on Mount Sinai. She's still his wife. He hasn't died yet. And so he's speaking to his wife here, and obviously not everybody's there, but those that followed him. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, we read, and seeing the multitude, that's his wife. He went up on a mountain, just like on Mount Sinai. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So they saw the representatives, you might say, of his wife. Just like Moses and Aaron and, uh, and his sons, two sons, and then the 70 elders that God commanded, you come up to the mount here, and uh, I'm going to give you uh, the law. And so uh, that's what, what, what is happening here. And so the multitude come, come to him. Well, he saw the multitude, so he goes up to the mountain, and he calls only the disciples. And then he opened his mouth, verse 2, and taught them, saying. And what we're going to read now is basically what he was going to explain to them in Mount Sinai, 
the law that was spiritual, as Paul calls it, wasn't a physical law, it was a spiritual law, uh, even though it dealt with physical things. And after all, just when, when you give charity to people, you know, when you give money, somebody is poor, when you visit the sick and all that, these are all physical things, but they have spiritual connotation. And so he's going to talk about these things. He's going to magnify, as uh, you read in Isaiah 42 and verse 21, that God is going to magnify his Torah. And that's what he's doing here. So understand from that point of view that this is the God of Israel in person on the mount, just like on Mount Sinai, speaking to his wife. And this is the context here, and it's not as later on begun to be taught by others, the Sermon of the Mount, and it took a totally different connotation and totally different meaning and speaking to totally different people, and he wasn't. He was speaking to his own people and he spoke to them in Hebrew with Hebrew idioms and Hebrew background that totally understood what he's talking about in many ways because they connected it with all the words of Moses and the prophets. And so when he tells them, for example, in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is coming, and he is going to be the king. That's why he told them the kingdom is among you. Because he was a representative of that kingdom that is coming to this earth. Yes, it has nothing to do with going to heaven. And all these ethereal stories and lies and deceptions that people concocted in their own minds, led by the devil and his demons, and they think it's of God. That's the kingdom he's talking about. And David is going to rule over the nations, all the tribes of Israel. And then the twelve disciples are going to be on the throne, sitting each one of them and ruling over one of the tribes of Israel. And then all the nations of the earth coming to Jerusalem to hear the word of God. That's the kingdom of heaven he's talking about. And if you don't have the context and the background, you don't get what you're reading. You don't understand it. You know, you're in a fairy, fairy, you know, tale land, so to speak. And, uh, or some people would say in la-la land. So let's understand everything from the point of view of God, of what he's trying to tell us and from the point of view of the background that he gave us to begin with. Without that, we're all confused. And that's the reason why many are in Babylon and think that they are in the light, in the truth. And so, this is what, we're going, what uh, we have here in these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. And then, as he continued to speak to his wife until the day he died. Uh, this is what we are reading here. It's always the children of Israel. And so, in, five, in chapter 5 and verse 17, this is what he told them. He tells his wife, in case some people, you know, were, were thinking that he's coming up with uh, the new religion, and he said, no, I'm not. When people say that Jesus Christ is the founder of Christianity, they're blind people, they're ignorant people, they don't know what they're talking about. What do you mean the founder of Christianity? To begin with, he never heard of that name at the time, and therefore could not be the founder of Christianity, and he didn't say to the world, hey, I'm coming with a new religion, forget about the Father, or forget about the religion I gave you in Sinai, which to begin with, they don't know that he's the one that did it. There's no such a thing as a founder of Christianity. Christ himself was not a Christian to begin with. He's God. He's the author of the religion. And he said that this religion is the one that the Father taught him. That is, Jesus in the flesh, being taught of the Father. And he came to obey the voice of his Father, the word of his Father, and he kept to keep the commandments of his Father. So what do you mean the founder of Christianity? If you speak like that, it's because you are still of Babylon. That's why. But time to wake up. So it says in verse 17 to his wife, 
Do not think that I came to destroy the, the Torah of the prophets. Why should he? He's the one that taught it and gave it. He didn't come to do away with it. That's one of you know, the other major lies of the counterfeit church that unfortunately many of God's people today believe. And that's why they resent the, the teaching of the law or the teaching of the Torah. They don't even want to hear the name. They said, teach us New Testament. What foolishness. Well, here's what Jesus Christ is teaching. The Torah of Moses. So why is it that people have resentment toward it? Isn't it because they're still members of Babylon? At least in part. That's why. So he says, do not think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, to magnify. That's what it means, to magnify. People say, well, Christ kept the law for us. He fulfilled it. They don't even know what they're talking about. He came to magnify it, to make it even much more binding, to explain the nuances of it, the details. Verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the Torah. And some, uh, some say, in their ignorance, well, the law means, you know, they don't say the Torah, they say the law. And as soon as you say the law, you already missed the point, you don't know what it means, because the word law does not convey what the word Torah means. Two totally separate words. The Torah includes law. And the law does not mean Torah. Torah is an all-inclusive. includes grace, includes law, in other words, includes a legalistic part. It includes poetry, includes, this, you know, psychiatry, psychology, history, prophecy, you know, many things. That's what the Torah is. That's a body of teachings. That's what it means. And uh, later on, uh, it would be referred to, at least in the, in the translation, as the doctrine of Christ. Doctrine means teaching. And Torah, it's the same word. So doctrine, in essence, is a closer one to, uh, you know, there is a body of doctrine to the word Torah. Law does not convey that meaning. And people don't like the way the word law because generally people clobber them with the law over their head. No wonder why they don't like it. And so he says, do not think that I came to do away with the law of the Torah or the prophets. For assuredly I said to you, till heaven and earth pass away, and have they passed away? Of course not. One judge or one title will by no means pass from the Torah. And when some people say law instead of Torah, uh, they generally think about the Ten Commandments. Where is the one judge or one title from the Ten Commandments? There is no such a thing. They're all ten major ones. And on that, everything is based. So when he says one yod or one coat, he's speaking about Hebrew uh, terminology, all the little uh, uh, scratches, you might say, that you have on top and under the, the Hebrew letters. So I said, you know, not even the tiniest little part of the law of the Torah is going to be done away with until all is fulfilled and all is not fulfilled. So why do people say the law is done away with? And on the other hand, why do people among the people of God say, well, I don't want to hear about the law. Just tell me about grace or tell me about the New Testament. Don't talk to me about the Torah. I don't even want to hear this word. Well, if you speak like that because you feel like that, this is what you are. If this is what you are, you are not of God. Not in this area. You're the, you know, the church is out of which you came. And God says, come out of those, out that Babylon or else you're going to be a part of it and partake of the plagues of that Babylon. And let's not kid ourselves that we are of God. Many people are going to come to God when He comes in His glory and they will say, Lord, Lord, hey, open the door for us too. You know, we've done all those marvelous things in Your name. A lot of people today, you know, go to hospitals and go here and go there. And they do all kind of good works, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. God commended that. 
But yet God will tell them, I don't even know you. Because you are lawless. In other words, you are without Torah. You, know, you just want grace and love and mercy and all that, and you do some good things. But James made it very plain. He who breaks one of the least of these commandments of the Torah, it's as if he broke all of it. And people have contempt and resentment uh, against God. They're just not of God. And we have to remember that. And God makes it very plain. And so, what we read here is totally opposite of what the churches have taught and what some of us have been infested with to this very day and should come out of it. And therefore, verse 19, that's a warning to those people. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these mitzvot in Hebrew, and mitzvot is inclusive, as a matter of fact, in the, in the book of Moses, there are 613 of them. And obviously, uh, many of them are, are linked only to the temple now, so they are not in, in, uh, in force, but they will be when the, when the temple is rebuilt. And so, Christ makes it very plain. This is the God of Israel. He's speaking to his wife. His wife is still around, and he's still around. He's still the husband. And some people don't think about it, so they don't get it. He's speaking to Israel, to his wife, to his church. The one is going to build because it has been in ruin, because of what the shepherds have done to her. And so it says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these mitzvot, or commandments, and he's not talking about the ten, he's talking about the entirety of the body of teachings, and teaches men so, and how many of us are doing it, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And as some say, shall be the least to be called into the kingdom of heaven, but whichever way it is, but whoever does and teaches them, he didn't say whoever teaches and does them. He said whoever does and then teaches them. Because oftentimes you can teach without even speaking anything, without even opening your mouth, just by your actions. You're already teaching people. When you're honest, you don't need to teach people honesty. They look at you and they see the difference and they learn. And your kids will learn from that and everybody else around you. But if you teach and you don't do, this is what people learn. What you do, not what you teach. Your example will determine. So God said, Jesus Christ said, the husband of Israel says to his wife, and to all those who claim to be his servants, but whoever does and teach them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be a great person? Don't try to rise up the ranks. That's not going to make you great. Great will make you when you obey God and you teach those words, either in deed or in words. That's the mark of greatness. Everybody wants to be great nowadays and always, and they're looking in their own ways to be great. You want to be great in the sight of God, not in the sight of men. That's totally meaningless. And so, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, and you cannot have righteousness unless you keep the Torah, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, many of the Pharisees, not all of them necessarily, but many of the Pharisees, I mean, there were people like Paul, who said that when he was a Pharisee, and he still was a Pharisee when he died, and he said that, people think Pharisee is a curse. I heard someone say, well, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, he spoke evil uh, against uh, the people of his time because they were evil people, and he called them Pharisees. Well, he didn't call them Pharisees. They were Pharisees. Pharisee means those who separate themselves from the rest of the world. 
you know, to uh, service of God. That's all it means. And Paul was proud to be a Pharisee. A lot of people are ignorant out there. They don't know what they're talking about because they have no background, no context. It's a, it's a, it's an honor to be a Pharisee. Pharisee means you separate yourself from the world. That's what God says. Come out of here, my people, and be you separate. Be you a Pharisee. That's what he meant. That's what he said. And people are so mixed up today, so far away from the intent and the, and the background and the, and the context and the truth and the word of God and so deeply entrenched in the teachings and the attitudes and the theology of the Babylonish religion that everything that God said now becomes strange and weird and evil and wrong. And so God says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees who they spoke and they taught, but oftentimes they didn't do. And so to exceed it is to do what they say, not only to say what they say, but also to do what they say, which is of the law of God. And so when you come to Matthew 23, this is what he's talking about. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. And when you sit in the seat of Moses, you better teach only Moses. And that's what he's telling them. Whatever they tell you to do, you do. What it is of Moses. That's the context. And the people understood what he's talking about. But ignoramuses don't. They think, oh, no, he couldn't mean that because it could be, you know, it could, he, he's not going to tell them to, to do what the Pharisees. No, he's not telling them what, to do what the Pharisees say in terms of their oral traditions and uh, inventions of rabbinic uh, teachings. No, he's saying whatever they do in the name of Moses. When they speak in the name of Moses, when they speak the words of Moses, you better do, because I commanded Moses those things. And when anybody, and I don't care whether it is a Pharisee or a scribe or anybody else, or even the devil himself, quotes a scripture that is of Moses, you better keep it and obey it and not have contempt for it. And that's what he's telling them. That's on Matthew 23. So here it says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, well, they did a lot of good things too. But oftentimes they did not do even what they taught. But he says, you know, whatever you do, you do and teach. And you teach and you do. The two together. That's how you exceed their righteousness. And you, and also you do it in the spirit. And you certainly will exceed their righteousness there. Keep the spirit of the law also, not just the letter of the law. And you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven if you don't do it. So you would not be a part of my kingdom when I come to establish the kingdom of this earth and be the king over all the earth and take my bride to myself, the children of Israel, and all those grafted from the world, you know, the individuals that God is grafting from all nations of the earth who are going to be a part of the commonwealth of Israel and then he's going to reign in Jerusalem. That's, that's a context. And those in the world are so much in blindness and in darkness and in confusion they haven't a clue of what they are reading when they are reading it. And none of us should be a part of that. Not have a trace of it and we should be able to say as time goes by like Jesus Christ, the prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. And we should have nothing of Babylon in us. And we're so drenched with it that sometimes we don't even realize where the deception begins and ends. Because we have no context and no background. You begin from Genesis 1-1 and you know what God is talking about when, he, when you come to the writings of, uh, of what people call the Gospels and then the disciples' writings, which are called the New Testament. Or epistles of Paul or in general epistles or whatever. And so, then he will, he will continue 
throughout the scriptures to explain more and more and more. But he's speaking to his kingdom, to his nation, to his people, Israel. And that's why he called them the children of the kingdom. That's the kingdom he's talking about. And people don't understand what it means. And then let's go to uh, chapter 7, where he's going to tell them about how to pray to the Father. Because up to now, they, they didn't know that they are, uh, at least at, uh, at that time, there was less, less, less and less knowledge and understanding of the two beings. Yet, yet, we have records of rabbis at the time who still knew about the two beings who were both divine. Because they read it in the Bible, in the prophets, in Moses. They read it in Daniel. One divine being coming to the ancient of days and receiving kingdom, and they knew that he is the Messiah, and that he is of a divine origin because he is in heaven, he is not on earth. And so he tells them now, when it, when, uh, when it comes to uh, prayers in chapter 6, let's read it in verse 7, and when you pray, he's speaking to his wife. Now you can, you can have a relationship with my father and your father too. In verse 6, he says, When you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, because by that time prayer became a public prayer, and yet the servants of God prayed also in private and in person. And yet the common people have not been taught to do it properly, not that none of them ever prayed in private. Because after all, you know, whenever you get in trouble, and you have a need and all that, and that's the first thing you do is you cry to God. You say, Oh, God. So people still... But they did not know how to approach the Father in the proper way, you know, and, and, uh, and to speak the right thing. So he's teaching his own wife now, in, you know, in the person, let's say, of the disciples. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, who is in the secret place, that is in heaven, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as a heathen. See, because you're children of Israel. You're my wife. Don't be like the nations of the earth. And he said that because some of his people began to learn those kind of uh, things because they went into Babylon and picked up some of those practices. They said, don't be like that. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, and you see here when he said, do not be like the heathen, it's, you know, he's making a separation that you are Israel, they are not. And some people don't get it. In verse 8, therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need before you ask Him in this manner. Therefore pray, Our Father which is in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Come where? Come to this earth. And He is the King, Jesus Christ. And the twelve disciples will be the kings over the tribes of Israel, and David over all of Israel, and then all the other righteous men in their positions. Your king will, you know, your kingdom come, come to this earth. And people think, well, either we are the kingdom, that is the church, and uh, the church will become uh, part of the kingdom, yes, in the future, but they're not the kingdom now. Uh, though they are spiritually speaking part of the kingdom, because they are part of the body of Christ, who, who is the head of that kingdom on this earth, under, under his father. And then he's going to turn this kingdom to his father a thousand years later. And... He says, your kingdom come, that is, come to this earth, come to Zion, come to Jerusalem, come to the wife, come to the bride, and then ultimately heaven in Jerusalem comes. And that heaven in Jerusalem is called the bride, because that's symbolic of the physical Jerusalem, symbolic of the nation, of the people of Israel, of the wife of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what it means. 
you see? And people that do not know the background, have forgotten the prophets and Moses, do not know the context, and are not searching the scriptures from the beginning until the end, and have been taught a lot of lies, and have been taught uh, to develop a resentment from babyhood, so to speak, from the first time they began to breathe, breathe you know, to, to hate the writings of the, the God that uh, were given to ancient Israel, and again, I call it ancient time, Jewish, you know, and all that thing, we don't want to have anything to do with it. A lot of people even publish what they call the Bible, and it's only the New Testament, showing their ignorance and their blindness and their darkness, so they are not of God. And God said very plainly that the kingdom is the one that he made very clear from the beginning of time through the prophets. And so, as you read all these things, and it will be a good thing for you to begin to read now, you know, not only the, the New Testament, but the entirety of the book, especially the entirety of the book from the beginning. And so when you come later on to this portion of the scriptures, and uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and so forth, you're going to see it with a totally different way. You will see it as the disciples of Christ saw it, as those who have been taught from their youth the Holy Scriptures, that were able to make them wise unto salvation by faith through Jesus Christ, as Paul tells Timothy. That's the only way to approach God. Worship Him in truth, not partial truth, but in truth, the entire body of truth, and in spirit, not with the wrong spirit or two spirits. And so this is what God is making very plain to His nation, to His people, to His wife, to His body of witnesses, to the Edah. It is, it is called, as God gave that name to his own people in, uh, in Exodus chapter 12. You see it three times. For the first time, God is introducing a new name to his people. He called them Edah, means uh, witness, and means in general, body of witnesses. All of them are to be a body of witnesses. And this is what he's telling them. And this is a part of the witness that the church, the true church of God has. And it's a good revelation. That's how God identifies his people. Those who keep the commandments, the Torah of God, and have the testimony, the witness of Jesus Christ. Being witnesses, as I said, you are my witnesses, are going to have the witness of God, of all the truth that he gave them from A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation. Not just a little bit here and a little bit there, and then create their own religion around it. Let's jump now to uh, chapter 8, verse 10, where we read, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, in other words, speaking about the centurion that came and asked him for healing, and he had uh, such faith because he was a man of law, a man of obedience, and a man that knew God to a degree at least, because that's the reason why he came to, uh, to uh, Jesus Christ. An ordinary Roman wouldn't do that. You know, we'll have contempt for him. But this person had fear of the God of Israel and of the teachings of Israel. And that's why he had faith. Because the two are linked. When you're obedient, and this man was a centurion, a soldier, and that's what the bottom line for the soldier is, discipline and obedience. And the more you are obedient, the more laws you obey, the more faith you have. The two are linked. People wonder why they don't have enough faith. Well, you don't obey God. Why would he have faith? If you don't do the things that God says to do, you're not going to have faith that he's going to to uh, answer your request. That's as simple as that. But when you obey God, you know that He will keep His part. Your obedience will give you faith. Because you do the right things and you have no worry. And that's the way it works. You know, 
If you renege on your loans to the bank, you wouldn't have faith that they'll loan you again when you need it. But when you are always on target and pay what you need to on time, you have faith that they, when you go to the bank, they'll give you the money. It's as simple as that. And that's the way it goes in every area. You go to work, you know, you do your job, you do your good job, and uh, the boss is pleased with that. And if you know, uh, you don't worry about the paycheck, you know, you'll get it because you've done your job. You see, in other words, you obey it, and therefore you get your reward. That's the way it works here. And this is what he's saying about the centurion. And he's saying that to his people Israel who are lacking faith because they were not obedient, generally speaking, as they should. And that's what he's saying to them, to their own shame. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Why? Because of rebellion, generally speaking, on the part of Israel. Because of iniquities, because of transgression. That was unfortunately the hallmark of Israel. And that's why he came to die for them. So he can help them mortify the deeds of the flesh. So they may be alive in the spirit. And therefore he's going to make with them now a spiritual covenant. Write it in their hearts. So that may be his people that he will be their God. And that's what he's talking about here. And so he says in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is here on this earth. And people read it and totally get confused about what it means. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast in, into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is he talking about? Is he saying that all of Israel is going to be cast away? No, because he made it very plain. All of Israel is going to be saved. But he's talking about the son of the kingdom, children of Israel, who still insist on being rebellious no matter what. They are the ones who are going to be cast into the lake of fire where they will be burned and there will be neither root nor branches left to them. And for that matter, every human being on the face of the earth from any nation who follows in that state of mind of rebellion. And so when you understand from God's point of view, everything becomes very plain. That's, uh, this is the gospel that Satan the devil wants to hide from the world. You know, the glorious gospel, the glorious good news of those who obey the Torah. As God said, in the, in the person of Christ, that's God speaking also. God of Israel, the husband of Israel. One of his children, one of members of the, of the wife came to him and said, Master, you know, you might say my husband, Master, my Lord, what must I do to enter into that life, to be in that kingdom that you are going to bring on this earth and be the king of it? He says, very simple, keep the commandments. How simple can it be? You see the link between the two? And that's why the centurion had faith, because he was an obedient person. And Christ honored that. And so, we have to remember that and be likewise. Come out of Babylon. Not have this attitude. Well, I don't like the law. I don't like, you know, the Torah. I don't want to hear about that. Don't tell me about that stuff, that old, old stuff. I don't even need to keep the Sabbath because I'm spiritual. And I don't need to, to, uh, to worry about the clean and unclean. You know, I can eat anything I want because I'm spiritual. That's why, that's old stuff. And you see how many of us are children of Babylon that claim, you know, to be children of God? And God says, if you are truly my children, you better come out of it. Exceed in your righteousness, the righteousness of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees. Or else you'll be told what God said he's going to tell some. I don't even know you, because you are lawless without Torah. That's what he says to them. 
Let's not be a part of that Babylon that came out of it. Chapter 9. And we read in chapter 9 and verse 35, where Jesus, it says, went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, tidings. We should have put tidings there. It would have been easier to understand. You know, instead of coming up with this new word, gospel, tidings. That's what the word in Hebrew is that was translated into English. Tidings. That was news. That's all it means. It could be good, could be bad. But obviously, this is good news. Preaching the tidings of the kingdom. That's the kingdom of Israel. That's what it means. Kingdom of the wife, of the bride, and the spirit. You know, the spirit that is God. God the spirit. As you read in Revelation later on, chapter 22, and the spirit, speaking about Jesus Christ, and the bride, say come. Now that the marriage has occurred, they're inviting all the rest of the nations. And so he says, this is what he was doing, he was teaching in their synagogues, preaching the tidings of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Because sickness is a result of transgression. And so, we are to repent of transgression. It brings on us spiritual sickness and disease, and physical sickness and disease. And often time, a spiritual sickness will create a physical sickness. And sickness. As a matter of fact, in most cases... When you're sick in your mind, you're going to have a lot of physical problems. You know, when you get angry all the time, that's a sickness of the mind. You're wrathful. Your stomach is always upset. A lot of acids are being poured into your, your system and you get sick. Or if you envy and jealous and all those things. Uh, this is what he was doing there. And so, this is what he taught there. And he healed the sick. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. That's his wife. For them, because they were weary. And scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And that's why God said, that's what Jesus Christ said. I will build my church, because look what the shepherds have done to my, my wife, to my people, to my house. The household of God. That's what he means by that. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. But the laborers are few. You know, a lot of my people, children of my wife, they're ready. You know, they're searching for the truth. They've been oppressed. They're sick and afflicted. After all, they're following him. People think, well, he came to his own and his own rejected him, and not fully understanding what it means. Well, the people followed him, but the leaders were the ones that were ultimately uh, victorious because God allowed them to deceive the people and, and uh, cause them to follow uh, them instead of follow their God. But the people, apart from the leadership, would have followed, and today they are the same. Unfortunately, the people of God are being led astray oftentimes by the, by the very leaders that should lead them to God instead of that they lead them to themselves and make merchandise of them and leave their expense and hold the, the truth, you know, in iniquity from them. Hold back the truth. And so, this is the same what is happening here. And therefore, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And what is his harvest? The people of God. The people of Israel, that's what he's talking about. His wife. And then when they are whole and righteous, then they can go to the world and teach the rest of the nations. Let's go to chapter 10 and verse 1. And we read here about the commission to his disciples. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits uh, to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. After all, remember, Jesus Christ is the physician. And he said, I did not come to 
uh, for those who are whole, but to heal the sick, and that's the majority of us. And then you read the name of the 12 tribes, uh, that is, the 12 uh, disciples of Christ, and then this is the commission he gives them. Verse 5, This 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. You see? Because the emphasis of the commission of Jesus Christ and of his disciples is to go to the Israel, Israel of God, the people of God, the house of God, the wife of God, the church of God. And then later on, when they are founded on the right foundation, then it can be the light of the nations. And that's why later on, when the church was established, made of the children of Israel, then he could call Paul out of them and, uh, and tell him, well, now you and uh, Barnabas, you go and bring some others also. Because not many of the, oh, the members of the wife are responding as they should. And to begin with, that was his intent to make them jealous, as he said, through Moses. And he certainly did. Verse 6, so he says, uh, but go rather, in other words, he says in uh, verse 5, do not uh, go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, because they were in the land. Uh, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in particular, at the time, he's talking about his own people, Judah, because obviously the disciples were not going all over the nations at the time, just on a local basis. The whole house of Israel. There's the northern house of Israel, there's the southern house of Israel, they're all Israel. And at the time, he was dealing only with those who were in that area. Not even to the Jews who were in Diaspora, which were the majority of them. And so in verse 7, he says, And as you go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received and freely give. And then he continues to tell them about all the other things that they need to do. And then verse 23, he tells them, And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So to whom is the message given first? What is the emphasis on the preaching of the good news, of the tidings to his wife Israel? And the majority of God's people today and have been in the past are children of Israel. I'm speaking about the genuine ones. And of course God also calls many of others, of other nations, that is. Well, anyway, we're going to stop now at this point, and this is Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.